Well, it's been a joy to be here with you for the last few weeks. This is my final week with y'all, final week of our Misunderstood series. If you have a Bible and you want to go over to Romans chapter 8, that's where we are going to be this morning, Romans 8, 28, as we finish this series out. Uh, as I was thinking about this passage, a song came to mind from uh, the early 1990s by the country artist Garth Brooks, a really popular song at the time. Uh, it was called Unanswered Prayers. It was off his No Fences album. There's the cover. Uh, this album was number one on the country charts for something like three months running back in, I think, 1990. And uh, Unanswered Prayers was one of the top singles from the album. You may remember it. You may not. You may or may not have been born when this song came out. Uh, but we are going to do something this morning that you've probably never done. And that is we are going to evaluate the theology of a Garth Brooks song, okay? So let me just read uh, the lyrics for us as we get going, because this is all going to tie into what I'm talking about. Uh, This isn't just a tangent, so I can have some fun reading some lyrics, trust me. Okay, so let me begin. It starts like this. Just the other night at a hometown football game, my wife and I ran into my old high school flame, and as I introduced them, the past came back to me, and I couldn't help but think of the way things used to be. She was the one that I'd wanted for all times, and each night I'd spend praying that God would make her mine. And if he'd only grant me this wish I wished back then, I'd never ask for anything again. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Remember when you're talking to the man upstairs that just because he doesn't answer doesn't mean he don't care. It's a nice triple negative. Some of God's greatest gifts our unanswered prayers. And then he goes on. She wasn't quite the angel that I remembered in my dreams. And I could tell that time had changed me in her eyes too, it seemed. We tried to talk about the old days. There wasn't much we could recall. I guess the Lord knows what he's doing after all. And as she walked away, I looked at my wife. And then and there, I thanked the good Lord for the gifts in my life. And then he goes on. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Now, fascinating song. Right, but I want to talk for a minute about what is, what is he getting at? Well, here's the story. If you just, if you didn't happen to catch it from the words, he says, back when I was in high school, there was a girl that I, I loved, or at least I thought I loved, and I wanted her. And so I prayed that I could marry this girl one day, but God didn't answer that prayer, right? That girl must have either broken up with him or they drifted apart or whatever it is. That relationship didn't end like he prayed. Many years later, he gets married runs into her again. And here's what he realizes. He says, actually, that girl was not as good as the wife that I have now. Right? So what I didn't get from those prayers back then, it's okay. That was all good. In fact, he says, I thank God for that. That was a good thing because God gave me something better. Right? I wanted this girl, but God gave me a better looking girl. Right, I wanted this girl, but God gave me a more interesting girl, somebody that's more interesting to talk to, right? So, so that the thread of theology that is running through the song is simply this, that if God takes something away over here, it's all good. Because God will give you something better with the other hand, right? Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe in a year, maybe in 10 years. Look for God to balance out the scales of your life in some way that will bring you pleasure and make you happy. 
That's an idea that is not only prominent in country music, but we hear that idea throughout the world all over the place. You may not be familiar with Garth Brooks, but you might be familiar with the old musical The Sound of Music. You may remember the movie starring Julie Andrews, and and there's a famous scene at the beginning of the film where, remember Maria, she's in a, a convent, and she's a problem, right? They don't know what to do with a problem like Maria, right? But the answer is, you kick her out, right? So they kicked her out of the convent, And they sent her away to go take care of Captain Von Trapp and his seven kids. And you may remember, as she is leaving the convent, what does she say? She goes, well, somewhere, she goes, if God shuts the door, somewhere, he opens a window, right? The idea is, if God closes this opportunity, I can trust that he will give me a better opportunity. In her case, that better opportunity came immediately. I've always thought that's an interesting image when we think about how God works, right? When God closes a door, somewhere he opens a window. I've always thought it's odd because I want you to imagine for a minute that you came home from work this week and you tried to get into the house and the door was closed and locked and you couldn't get in. And so you knocked and from the other side, your spouse said, oh, sweetie, I have I've closed that door to you. But if you're resourceful, you'll find the window I opened and you can climb in. Now, what would you say? You'd say, that's not nice, right? That's not a nice thing to do to somebody. Is that how God works? Does God move throughout our lives and he says, I'm closing this one, I'm closing this one, I'm closing this one. But look, be on the lookout Tomorrow, the next day, next year, next week, I'm going to open some better opportunity and you're going to see it and you're going to know it so that whatever God took away, hey, that's good. Whatever pain and disappointment and suffering you endured, we can call that good because God will give you something better to compensate for what you lost. And the reason I'm harping on this understanding of God is because I think it can infiltrate the way we understand the scripture if we're not careful. I want to show you our passage for today because I think sometimes when we read this passage, we interpret it through this particular grid. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And I think sometimes when we read this passage, what we hear is this, that if something bad happens in my life or somebody else's life, hey, it's good, it's okay, keep a stiff upper lip. Because very soon, hopefully in this life, God's going to give you something better to compensate for that loss. I want to look at why that understanding of the passage misses the mark. And I think it misses the mark in a dangerous way. And then we're going to look at what it actually says. You may remember the very first week of this series, I told you, I'm not ever going to take away your understanding of a passage without providing something greater in its place. Okay, and what we're going to see with Romans chapter 8, I'm not going to knock down our house of how we understand this passage without providing a framework that I think is going to help us understand how much greater the promises that God has given us are, how much greater they are than this thin understanding of being compensated in some way for our losses, of always looking for a balancing of the scales. There's something so much greater 
in this passage as we look at what God has promised. And I think it's going to be critical to us also for this reason because one of the key aspects of how we walk with God is this question of how do we address pain and disappointment and suffering? Not only in my life, but in the lives of those around us. What are the words that I use when I'm trying to comfort? What are the words I tell myself in the midst of loss and pain about who God is, about what God does? I can't think of anything more critical than understanding the character and the promises and the purpose of God in Jesus Christ. So I think we need to come to terms with Romans 8.28. Here's what I'm going to do this morning. Just like every week, we're going to look at how the passage is often interpreted. And then what I'm going to do this week is I'm going to, I'm going to say... Uh, why is this interpretation, I'm not going to say incorrect, okay, but I'm going to say incomplete. This is a little different from some of our other uh, passages that we've looked at in that the, the typical interpretation of this passage is not necessarily 100% wrong. And that's what I think makes it so dangerous. But it's dangerously incomplete. So again, like we've done every week, I'm going to give a few quotes, a couple of quotes this morning that highlight how the passage is often used. And then we're going to talk about why that misses the mark. And then we're going to look at what it actually means. Okay, let me give you just a couple of quotes. This first one, this is from uh, Pastor Joel Osteen. It says, right now, God is working behind the scenes in your life. No matter what you may be facing, no matter what trial you may be going through, God has a plan to turn things around in your favor. Right now, he is working out a plan for your good. Right now, he is orchestrating the right people to come across your path. He is orchestrating the right opportunities to open up to you. Focus on his goodness in your life, knowing that he rewards the people who seek after him. You'll experience his peace and joy and embrace the victory he has prepared for you. Right now, I share that not to pick on him, but simply to illustrate, and this isn't a sermon on this passage, to illustrate, here's the concept. You need to say, if God has taken away an opportunity right now, God is working on a better opportunity, opportunity, either today or in the near future. God is going to bring the right people instead of the wrong people for me to build the life that I hope to have, for me to experience the victory today that I hope to have. Here's another one. This is from a, a newspaper in Springfield, Missouri. In June, a fire broke out at New Covenant Academy's New Liberty Campus. After months of renovations, the campus will open to students Tuesday morning. The fire was contained, and Romans 8.28 says, All things work together for good, Linda Beck's teacher said. So I believe that it all worked together in his timing. You see what she's saying? God took away that building. We got a better building. Right, So this is a fulfillment of Romans 8.28, that what God takes away with the left hand, he returns with the right hand. And I just need to look for it. It works out. It's good that that building burned down, because we got a better building. Okay, so I want to I summarize then typically how the passage is understood. It's often interpreted in this way. If something bad happens to you, Expect God to do something in the near future in order to balance the scales. It's all going to work out. It's all going to be okay. 
And I want to talk for a few minutes again about why the usual interpretation is, I'm going to say again, incomplete. And here's why I'm going to say incomplete. Because all of us can think of times, I'm sure, in our lives when this interpretation did play out, right? You probably can think of times in your lives, you're like, man, I resonate with Garth Brooks, right? Because I went through a bad breakup. But had I not gone through that breakup, I wouldn't be married to who I'm married to now, right? Or maybe I lost a job that I loved. Well, had I not lost that job, I would not experience the joy of the job that I have now, right? But then I know that there are others of you that you say, well, I just went through that bad breakup this morning, Where's my compensation, right? Or I lost a really good job and I have not ever found one that I loved as much as that job. Or I experienced the death of a friend or a family member. Where's the compensation for that? Right? And so the usual interpretation, it's not that it's always wrong. It's just that it's incomplete. And here are a few reasons why it's incomplete. The first one is this. Romans 8.28 does not tell us that everything is good. It says God is working everything for good. This is a critical point. Romans 8.28 is not saying that everything that happens is a good thing. We live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world. We live in a world where death and disappointment and loss are real. And they're not good. And that's why the scripture tells us, woe to him who calls evil good. We're about to start football season here in a few weeks. The Aggies will begin to play. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm hoping this is our year, right? I'm always, always hoping this is our year, right? I've been hoping this for for decades. But this, (laughs) this is it, right? This is our year, right? So, so we're going to win. We're going to go all the way. We're going to go to the national championship. But what if we don't? Now imagine that, we, that we, we don't make it, right? And you run into one of the players or the coaches the night before that national championship game. And they've lost and they're not headed there. But it's okay, right? You say to them, look, there's good news here. It's really good that you didn't get to go. You know why? Extra vacation. (laughs) Extra study time. You can sit with your friends now and watch the game and eat queso. And who doesn't love queso? (laughs) And they're going to say to you, you're ridiculous. Right? I can eat queso the day after the game. I can take vacation next week. On the whole... What I got doesn't compensate for what I lost, right? But see, I think the danger that we often face when somebody is struggling with suffering or pain is we want to immediately rush in and try to say, hey, it's okay, it's good, right? And I've seen this type of thinking applied when people are facing things like terminal illness or even the the miscarriage of a child. Or the loss of a dearly held relationship. It's okay. It's all good. We do it to ourselves as well. And here's what I think happens. is As long as we have to insist that everything that happens is good. Rather than reading the passage carefully. To recognize it says God works everything for good. As long as I have to say, hey, this is all good. It's all good. What happens is then I refuse myself the opportunity 
to grieve properly. I deny myself the opportunity to recognize that until the day that Jesus returns, we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world so that loss and disappointment and pain and death, those are never good things. Here's what's going on. When I feel disappointed or when I feel sad, one of two things is happening. Either truly the circumstances around me are bad, right? If somebody has died, then the circumstances are painful. So either the circumstances are truly bad Or my heart is misaligned with the will of God, right? Either the circumstances are bad or my expectations are off. But neither of those things is good. And one thing that I find fascinating as we read the scripture is that Jesus, even Jesus who understood better than anybody on the planet, God's plans. Jesus grieved. One of the most powerful passages in the gospel narratives, in fact, is John chapter 11. Remember when Jesus' friend Lazarus died. So Jesus goes to where Lazarus is buried. And he sees everybody around mourning the loss of Lazarus. Now now picture the scene for a minute because Jesus, you know what? Jesus knows what he's about to do. He knows that he's about to raise Lazarus from the dead. So what does Jesus do? Well, you remember he goes, hey guys, buck up. It's okay, it's all good. Actually, that's not at all what he does. What does he do? Well, you memorized the passage probably in Sunday school, right? To get those memory credits. Jesus wept. See what's happening. Jesus, even Jesus recognizes death isn't good. Pain isn't good. Now, Jesus is going to work it for good, but it's not good. And so Jesus grieves. So the passage doesn't say everything is good. Instead, God is working everything for good. And there are some qualifiers in this passage that explain how and when God is working everything for good. Usual interpretation is also incomplete because of this reason. Romans 8, 28 is only for those who believe in Jesus. You may remember a few weeks ago, I shared the illustration of my friend who gave his kids 20% interest on the money that they invested with the bank of dad. You guys remember that? And, and we talked about how anytime we're looking at a passage of scripture, we have to go, uh, who is this promise given to, right? I can't get in on the 20% bank of dad interest rate because the promise wasn't made to me. Similarly, Romans 8.28 makes a very critical qualification. All things work together for good to who? To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Okay, here's here's what's important about Romans 8.28. Is that Romans 8, and we're going to talk about the context of the book of Romans here in a moment. Romans 8 is right in the middle of a passage talking about all that God has given to those who believe in Jesus. See, here's the important thing. Without the hope of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, without the hope of eternity, we don't have the hope that everything's going to work out okay. See, Paul is going to say the reason you can trust that God is working everything for your good and for his glory is because you know him and you have an eternity in Jesus Christ that cannot be taken away. 
me share just a couple of quotes from some modern day theologians. All right, the first one is uh, from uh, John Lennon of the Beatles. Here's what he says. Everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. All right, and, and, and an even perhaps deeper way of saying it from Bob Marley. Don't worry about a thing because every little thing is going to be all right. Right now, now, not to undermine either of these guys' music, but, but you know, tragically, both of these men died at, at young ages, right? One from a bullet, one from cancer. And, and, and unless Jesus returns first, guess what? That's where all of us are headed, to the grave. Right, so tell me, in what sense is it all going to work out okay if we don't have the hope of resurrection? If we don't have the hope of eternal life, if we don't have the hope that the scripture gives us that one day Jesus Christ will overturn death, will overturn sin, will overturn pain and loss, if we don't have that hope, then Romans 8.28 is meaningless. When you look at the following two verses, Romans 8.29-30, it says this, For those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? says, this is who this promise is for. If you don't know Jesus this morning, the great news is that There is a free and open invitation for anybody on the planet to know Jesus Christ and know this hope. And Paul says, for all who trust in Jesus Christ, there is an eternal, unshakable hope that can never be taken away. So Romans 8.28 is not saying that everything will always work out okay, especially in the short term. And that's, that's the third reason this normal interpretation, this usual interpretation, misses the mark. And it's this. Romans 8.28 offers eternal hope. And not quick fixes. It offers eternal hope and not quick fixes. That where Romans 8.28 leads us is that we are looking forward to the day when God's plan is fully completed. When Jesus returns and God establishes his kingdom. Uh, This is a great opportunity. Let me just remind you again uh, of a little bit of the flow of the book of Romans, right? Because every week we've said, when you run across a passage like this, you want to look at uh, context, 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 right? So we want to look at the flow of the book of Romans for just a minute. Romans is this beautiful book of joyful contrast, right? We were dead in our sin, but God made us alive in Jesus. We were sinners, but God has made us righteous through Jesus. We were enemies of God, but God has made us friends through Jesus, Right, So the first three chapters of the book of Romans, they walk through a real problem that we have. Right, And the problem is ourselves. We have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody in this room, everybody on the planet, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. That's what Romans 3, 1 through 3 is walking us through. And the penalty of that is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. A separation from God for eternity. Romans chapter 4 through 5 then says, but here's what God has done in Jesus Christ, that God has brought us peace through the death 
of his son Jesus Christ. That Jesus died to take the penalty for our sin. That's Romans 4 and 5. And then Romans 6 through 8 where we find this passage this morning. He says, now that you have peace with God. Now that your sin is forgiven. The spirit of God, the law of the spirit has set you free from the law of sin and death. That is the spirit of God lives in you and the spirit of God does a few things. One is he empowers us to obey God. And so Paul talks about that in Romans 6 and 7 where previously we had the law but we couldn't obey it. Now we have the spirit and we can listen to the voice of God and we can reflect the character of Jesus Christ, right? Through what we say and through what we do. But also Romans 8 then tells us, you know, as you walk the Christian life, there are going to become moments in your life where it seems dark, right? You don't know what to pray. Guess what the Spirit does? The Spirit steps in and He intercedes on your behalf. The Spirit gives you words when you have no words. When you feel out of control, when you wonder where the world is headed, when you wonder where your world is headed, guess what? The Spirit speaks to your spirit and you know what He says? He reminds you, you are a child of God. The Spirit of God within you cries out, Abba, Father, because you belong to God in a way that can never be shaken and never be taken away. And so what Romans 8 is telling us is this. You have to look at your story in light of the big story. That God is writing a story that includes you, but it's not all about you. God is writing a story to work all things together for good. To those who love God and are called according to his purpose. But we're not going to see how the whole picture comes together. Until the day Jesus returns. I don't know how many of you have ever seen uh, one of these. And I I apologize if you can't see that well from back here. Where you are. But uh, this is a um, hidden image coloring picture. Right? So uh, you can see there there are numbers on there. It's a color by number. And so, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, and you're supposed to color each little sliver a different color, right? And then a picture will emerge. I don't know if you can tell what the picture is or not. I don't want to give it away in case you want to color this later, right? Actually, I will tell you, after I uh, gave this sermon at Creekside for the first time, um, a friend of mine, actually, he went and he downloaded it and he did color it. I should qualify that. He did it with his daughter. So, you know, it's a unicorn, right? But here's the thing. When you're coloring any one piece, what do you see? Well, you you just color in that yellow piece and that's all you see. Or you color in that orange piece, that's all you see. If you're standing in the middle of that little orange sliver, you're looking around going, I don't understand what's going on. Why, Why am I orange? I don't get it. Right? But you pull back and what do you see? You see the whole picture when it's all coming together. That's the picture that Romans 8.28 is painting for us. All I'm doing right now is I'm standing in the middle of my little sliver. And all I see what's happening to me. All I know what's going on in my heart. And Romans 8.28 says, you know, God sees the whole picture. And what he's doing is he's creating a picture. For the good and the joy of those who love him and for his glory. And you may never see how all of that picture comes together. Certainly not in this life. And because we're finite, we may never fully understand all the ways in which God has worked to write his story. And therefore, I may not be able to look in this life and say, oh yeah, 
God took this away over here. He compensates me over here. And I certainly can't look right now and say, yeah, that was good what happened. But instead I can trust that God is working all things for good to those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. That the day is coming when death and sin and tears and trial and pain will not exist. So what does the passage then actually mean? Here's how I would summarize it. For those who know Jesus, we have an unshakable hope that nothing can ruin God's plans for us. Even in the worst of circumstances, God is working for our salvation and toward the renewal of all creation. Even when I'm standing in my little piece of the picture and I go, man, this is... This is the worst. God is working for our salvation and toward the renewal of all creation. You know, what's interesting, I I mentioned at the beginning that that for some of us, there are times in our lives where we can look back, right? And we can say, I know that if X had not happened, Y would not have happened, right? I can see the grace of God in my life, in my story, even today. And that is true. In fact, there's a biblical illustration of that that I want to highlight this morning. Some of you will remember the story of, of Joseph from the Old Testament, right? And you remember Joseph, he has all of these brothers who decide in their loving kindness to sell him into slavery. Right? Their first plan is to toss him into a well and just let him die. But then they pull him up, they sell him into slavery. And he goes into slavery in Egypt. Then he is falsely accused of rape where he ends up in prison. And he languishes in prison for years until he's finally pulled out of prison by the hand of God. And he's elevated to the second most important position in all of Egypt, right underneath the Pharaoh. And at the end of his story, you remember his brothers come and they they see him again. And there's this long story about about how Joseph at first hides his identity, but then he reveals his identity. That's a whole other sermon. But you may remember at the very end, all the brothers, along with their father, they move to Egypt. And after Jacob, their father, dies, all the other brothers, they're terrified, right? They go, now that our dad is dead, Joseph's going to kill us. And Joseph calls him in, and you may remember this moment. He says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive, right? What is Joseph saying? Joseph says, you meant something bad, but what did God do? God worked it for good. He can see that. He can see that now in his life. But I want to point this out. It's not just about Joseph feeling better, right? This is not a matter of God saying, you know, uh, Joseph, I realize that the last 15 years have been a bummer. So I at least owe you something over here. That's not what it's about. What this is about is God working to place Joseph in a strategic position so that all of the Israelites can be saved from death to preserve many people alive. You see what's going on? God has a saving purpose through Joseph's life that is so much bigger than Joseph. And that's what Joseph wants his brothers to know. Now, if you asked Joseph, 
And Joseph, would you say it was a fantastic thing that you were sold into slavery, imprisoned, and left to rot for years? I don't think Joseph would go, yeah, let's do that again, man. Right? That's not, that's not the point of the story. His brothers never came, incidentally, and said, hey, Joseph, it's not that big a deal, man. Like, get over it. You're, you're in charge now, right? That, that must be good. Had we not sold you into slavery, buddy, you wouldn't have this sweet job, right? They don't do that. They recognize what they did was, was evil. It was wrong. It was terrible. But God moved it for a greater purpose. There's a parallel passage in the New Testament to Romans 8, 28. It's in Ephesians chapter 1. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things, all things after the counsel of his will. So for those who know Jesus Christ you have an unshakable hope that can never be taken away. That God is writing a story. It's bigger than you. It's bigger than me. God is working for our salvation and for his glory. Practically speaking then, three implications of this passage. First one is this. Nothing happens outside of God's control. Nothing happens outside of God's control. I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that God is the author of evil. I'm not saying that God makes people sin. In fact, James is very clear. God cannot be tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. Right? That's not what Romans 8 is saying. Romans 8 is saying that even the worst things that happen, God is greater than those things. God is in control of the ultimate direction of history. Think about one of the worst things that has ever happened in the history of the human race. You know what it is? We crucified Jesus. And yet, in the book of Acts, it says, Jesus delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You see that juxtaposition. God is always in control. But lest you forget, you, you did this thing. So it's not that God made you do it. It's not that God authored you. But again, Romans says, God works all things together for good. It results in the salvation of God's people. Nothing happens outside of God's control. Think about it this way. Imagine that this afternoon... You go to take a nap or whatever after lunch and uh, your kids, they say, hey, can we work on a craft at the kitchen table? And in a moment of distraction, you say yes without asking a lot of questions. <laughs> right? So you come back later and they've created a craft that involves Play-Doh, confetti, and glitter. And it's everywhere. I mean, your house the property value just dropped, like 13, 14%, right? You will never get it all out. You'll have to disclose it when you sell the home someday. There's <laughs> glitter on the floor. Now, what's going to happen? You're going to walk in, you go, what in the world have you done? I wasn't expecting this. Your day is shot. You are caught off guard by what they did. Right, what Romans 8 tells us is that doesn't happen to God. Okay, God never walks in the room and goes, whoa, what did you do? 
He knows what you did. He's always in control. And he's always good. And in the midst of trial, in the midst of suffering, I realize often you go, well, that's small comfort. But here's what Romans 8 is saying. God's hand is always on the wheel. And there's some things we know about God, right? We don't know everything that's going on. We don't know all of God's plans, but there's some things we know about God. He's in control. And he loves you. And so Romans 8 is reminding us, even in the midst of that pain, He's writing a good story. So that nothing happens outside of God's control. Secondly, Romans will tell us God is conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. The New Testament quite often views our trials as training, as discipline. That is that God is is conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. Next year, 2020, Summer Olympics will be on again. I enjoy watching the Summer Olympics. But I'll be honest, if you're like me, you probably don't watch a whole lot of gymnastics or swimming or things like that in between the Olympics. Right? Most of the time, you're not watching that. Some of you may. You may just be a person that really enjoys turning that on and you've got you know, all 17 ESPNs or whatever, so you, you turn all that on. But most of us, right, the one time we're really watching those folks is on the national stage during the Olympics. But think about this. For four years... They've been training in obscurity, right? And and so you may have a sprinter that is going to race a 10-second or sub-10-second 100-meter dash. And he's been training every day for four years. You didn't see any of that training. All you saw was the 10 seconds. Now go ask him at the end of the race, if you could have the 10 seconds without the four years, would you take that bargain? Absolutely. Absolutely. But you can't. You can't have the winning the race without the training that it takes to conform yourself into the kind of runner who can win that race. Right? And so the scripture says when we are enduring trial and suffering, God is conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ so that we can become faithful worshipers of Jesus who reflect Jesus' character. Right? Because Jesus knew how to suffer. And trust in the midst of it. So God is conforming us into the image of Christ. Even in the midst of trial. And then thirdly, the end of our story is good. The end of our story is good. Let me read to you from Revelation chapter 21. I I read from this passage a lot. This This is the end of the story, right? This is where everything is going. This is how God turns everything toward good. At the very end of the story. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 2, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Now listen to this, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death. And there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. God is writing a story where the ending is good. 
Several years ago, my wife was watching a movie at our house, and it was kind of a longer movie, so she was watching it in increments over several nights after the kids had gone to bed, and so, you know, 45 minutes here, 45 minutes there, so I would come in and out of the room, and I would see her watching this movie and getting increasingly uh, intrigued with the premise and the characters and all of this, and about the fourth night, I came in, and the credits were rolling, and she was just sitting there on the sofa, mouth just open, and I said, what? what's going on? And she says, I hate that movie. <laughs> and I said, well, why? She said, that was the worst ending. I've ever, they, they, they built up this, this love story over multiple decades, several hours, and then they killed one of the participants in the love story in the last two minutes of the movie. And she just couldn't get over it. I don't think she's ever forgiven those filmmakers. <laughs> why? Because you expect the end of the story to resolve. And it didn't. Here's what the scripture is saying. The end of our story, it's a good one. That's not going to happen when we stand before the throne of Jesus Christ. You're not going to go, oh, come on. That was the worst. Right? That's not going to happen. God is writing a good story. And quickly as we close then, how should we respond? First one is this. Trust in Jesus. As we've said before, All of the promises of Romans 8 are for those who know Jesus Christ. If you're in the room this morning and you don't know that you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, come talk with me. Talk with a friend in the room this morning. Or even just where you sit in the quietness of your heart this morning as we close in a moment in worship. Say, God, I trust in Jesus and his death and resurrection so I can have eternal life. And you will know that you have eternal life. Secondly, don't be ashamed to grieve. And don't be afraid to allow others to grieve. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We can acknowledge the suffering of this world while also acknowledging that the character of our God is good and we can trust him. And that the end of our story is good and we can remember the good news. So that we can say, yeah, right now, with all creation, we groan but we know redemption's coming. We groan, but we know the end of the story is good. And God's character in the midst of it never changes as he works all things together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Let's pray and then we're going to close with worship. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your son who died and rose again so that we can know that we have forgiveness of our sins, because without Jesus, the end of our story would not be good. But it is. And so we praise you. Teach us to trust you, even in those moments of darkness, in those seasons of grief. Father, we pray that we would not look for the thin promises of compensation in this world, but for the rich and joyful promise you've given us of eternal life in your presence. Father, we thank you so much. Lord, we pray, give us your strength and energy as we prepare to go out from here to become worshipers, not just in this place, but in every place you send us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.